If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm your host, Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week by Chris Mayo, head of Primary Markets Americas at the London Stock Exchange. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Uh, Nice to be here, Kate. Thank you for inviting me. So we've invited Chris to do a special episode focused on direct listings, which is something we've talked about week after week on this podcast, and we figured we should have an expert in who can really explain to everyone what these are, why everyone's talking about them, and what it means for the future of the public markets. Before we jump into that conversation, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Where are you based? What do you do? You're right. And your background. <laughs> so I'm based in New York, and basically my remit is to get companies from the US to actually the entire Americas to IPO in London. And what I focus on is smaller companies, so companies with usually sub-billion dollar valuations because London has a pretty supportive environment for that compared to the US, and we have an investor base which is focused on smaller companies. My background is that I was an investment banker for a long time, um, half in the UK, half in, in the US. In fact, I spent more than half of my career in the US. So I've done IPOs in both in both countries and understand the processes in, in, in both jurisdictions. So I have some quite strident views on both IPOs and uh, direct listings that I'll be happy to discuss with you today. So why would a company want to IPO in London? Why would an American company want to IPO in London? Well, again, this is a really a question about where we have spe- specific advantages. Now, we do IPOs for very large companies as well, but when it comes to a U.S. company, there is not a really supportive environment in the U.S. for companies with sub-billion dollar valuations. And in fact, most companies would just take private capital, but we feel that we can offer companies with sub $1 billion valuations and a public market option because the cost of going public in the UK is much lower than, than the US. Litigation risk is less and also the investor base is much more used to investing in smaller companies. And we have had VC-backed companies from the Bay Area go public in London. You know, um, companies backed by Andreessen Horowitz, ben, Benchmark, Cosler, those kind of VCs. And so we're really offering those VCs a route to liquidity they perhaps didn't know they had. Because, you know, for a company of, of, you know, a sub-billion dollar company, they probably think the only way to liquidity is M&A. We can actually offer them a public market route as well. So they can theoretically make just as much money uh, if they are more going public in London, but they might not have to pay quite as much in fees for these investment bankers and, you know. Yeah, fee, fees in the UK, actually in Europe, are substantially less typically than they are in the US. And that's not just the underwriting fees, but also the, you know, the fees for the other advisors involved. And obviously that's a key driver, but also the fact that the investor base is more geared up to invest in smaller companies. So, you know, we see a lot of you know, IPOs for companies with $500 million valuations, you're not going to see these days, or you don't see very often, a company of that size going public in the US. And it's because there are two reasons. I mean, one of them is obviously a very positive reason. There's a real abundance of private capital here. But the other reason is people just don't see, it, the, you know, the worth from a cost perspective in doing it. And that is actually very different in the UK. It actually is cost effective for a smaller company to go public. And there's a really big difference between the UK and the US in that respect. So I'm curious how how much people talk, are talking about direct listings in the UK. Let's let's sort of get into this conversation first. Take a step back. 
fees are a big reason why people are so excited about direct listings because they essentially cut those fees out of the picture. So let's let's just define direct listings. What is the simplest way to define a direct listing for someone who doesn't pay close attention to the, the stock markets? Yeah. So really all it is, is it is a listing on a stock market without a stock offering attached. So we think about IPO, the O stands for offering. In a direct listing, there is no offering. There is no raising of primary capital by the company. There is also no sale of stock in the offering from existing investors. In, existing investors are able to sell stock, but at the point or after listing. So they are not locked up, and that's actually one of the attractions for existing investors with a direct listing. There is no, uh, there's no I, you know, IPO lockups uh, because typically in an IPO you have a 180-day lockup, so the VCs and, and other people will be existing investors will be locked up for that period of time. That does not occur with a direct listing. And because you don't issue any new stock with direct listing, you also don't raise any new capital, right? Correct. So how are companies, you know, especially these companies in the valley that are burning through much cash? How are they able to do a direct listing? If you've got a company that has a primary capital requirement, it's going to need either to do an IPO or it needs to be, to be doing a private placement quite close to, or in prior to that direct listing. So you can't really get away from the fact that, you know, you're going to need to raise capital uh, from that perspective. And so there is obviously a there's a debate whether the most efficient way to do that is a private placement prior to the direct listing or actually just doing a traditional IPO. You know, that is some of the controversy that people are talking about right now. But to be honest, I would say that most of the companies that are suitable to do direct listings do not have a large primary capital requirement. They've already uh, done large private rounds, have uh, cash on their balance sheet, and therefore do not need to be raising money at the time of offering. So, you know, those are the those are the situations we've seen with recent direct listings. So it seems like the bottom line here is that not all companies can successfully complete a direct listing. I actually think that the 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 amount of companies that this is suitable for is actually much more narrow than people think. So I think it works for companies which are have scale, which are already brand names, do not have a uh, primary cap, um, large primary capital requirement. And also, I think they need to have some loose existing shareholders, but not too many. So what I mean that, that is you don't want a situation where all of the existing shareholders are looking to sell out because as a investor in the public market, that will cause you concern because you think there's always going to be downward pressure on the share price. So I think some loose shareholders are willing to sell, but not a lot is the, is the, is the kind of best profile for this kind of structure. So would you say there there's sort of three, new, three options now for going public, one being a traditional IPO, another being a direct listing, um, you know, just not raising any new capital and just completing a direct listing, and a third option being raising a pre-IPO or a whatever you call it, pre-placement round, yeah. and then completing a direct listing. Yeah, and I think that um, we haven't seen the latter one yet, but I think that that's probably where, we'll, where we're headed and probably from the venture capital community, that's probably what they're targeting. Um, but, you know, again, the, and essentially what all you're doing is you're just moving the book build from, from the public market to the private market and actually doing it on a much narrow, narrower basis. And obviously, you can, you, you know, um, it's a question of which intermediaries you're going to use for that. So it's a question of what fees you're going to pay. So that third option, it remains to be seen actually how that's going to work out. But I, accept, I expect people will try that third option as well. It's interesting that you say this is narrow, it's not suitable for everyone, because that, that certainly was my understanding. But I think in the last few weeks or maybe the last couple of months, you've seen more people like Bill Gurley, who's been yeah. a big evangelist of direct listings now for a while. You've seen people like him kind of say, hey, this could really be for almost anyone, not just companies like Slack or Airbnb or Spotify. This can be for all sorts of companies. 
No, it could. I mean, if you've got a primary capital requirement and you can still like, get that capital prior to the direct listing, then you've achieved your objectives, essentially. But I would, what I would say is that that private raise is likely to be much narrower in scope than doing a public offering. And also, you're not, you know, and I think this is kind of the, talking about the democratizing of the kind of equity market. You, retail will not be able to participate in these deals. So actually, you're narrowing the people who are going to be involved in these kind of deals. But obviously, what I would say is the, the venture capitalists will turn around and say, but we think that by doing these uh, rounds prior to IPO, that we're getting better pricing, both from a fee perspective, but also from a valuation perspective. And I think that's, that's the key to this discussion is, uh, is the IPO process both pricing in terms of valuation and, and allocation working properly and that's really where the why the debate about um, direct, direct listings is happening. Yes that leads me to sort of the next subject I want to get into which is the landscape that's facilitated the rise of direct listings. What is so wrong with IPOs that has so many people uh, really advocating for this new route? Right um, so I'm going to make something very clear here this is actually a U.S. problem it's not happening elsewhere. So let me give you a data point, which I think will be really interesting to you. So I looked at IPOs of $10 million deal size or larger since the start of 2017 to the end of August of this year for both the UK and the US. In the US, there were 47 deals, IPOs, that popped more than 50% on day one. In the UK, that number, equivalent number was zero. Right, so you understand that this actually is a problem here. It's not okay, a problem elsewhere. Okay, so the elsewhere. investment bankers here are bad at pricing IPOs. No, no. What's well, going wrong? No, well, I think there are a couple of things to say. Um, uh, there, there are differences in price discovery mechanisms in the IPO process between the UK and the US. So the UK allows much more extensive uh, use of testing the waters. So you can talk to investors in a, in a much broader way in the UK than you can here and actually get valuation feedback. Now, the SEC is actually trying at the moment to broaden that. They've actually released a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, basically said that we're going to expand the use of testing the waters to allow companies to engage uh, with investors prior to IPO. So you can get evaluation mm -hmm. feedback um, on that basis. And so, so the UK, there's a much more extensive um, engagement with investors prior to IPO. And also we, we have deal research still, IPO deal research in the UK. And on the basis of that, you get valuation feedback from investors before going on the roadshow which enables you to set a price range, which is actually based on really good feedback. In the US, you're not allowed to do this. So I think in the US, a lot of companies are going into their roadshow with very limited information. And, and actually, the investors also have very limited information. So there is, there's more kind of people are kind of feeling around in the dark when it comes to valuation. Uh, in, in, in the US in a way that they're not in the UK. And I think, you know, that's just a difference in the IPO process between the two countries. Um, and, um, and clearly in the US, it's not just a case of underpricing, because obviously we've seen many deals that have, have popped too much in the view, view right. of venture capitalists. But also, we've seen deals which have been, in the press, have been talked about as being heavily oversubscribed, and then they, they trade down. So it's not just a question of, of trading up too much. It's also, a, it's just a question of value is struggling to find the right valuation. You know, so there are questions about price discovery and the mechanisms to do that. But there's also, I think, questions about um, IPO, the IPO allocation process. So Bill Gurley will, will turn around and say, the best way to do this is just to, you know, do the direct listing and the market will find that, you know, basically right. people will put in their orders and, the, and the, you know, you'll get that trading price and that will be, you know, the right way to do things. Now, the whole point of doing an IPO book build was the, the ability to choose your investors in a way that you would choose your investors if you were doing a venture round. Mm -hmm. So um, if the allocation is done properly, 
a lot of those investors should be staying on your register for a long time. And clearly, if the, if the, if the price goes up 70% on day one, that is incentive for that shareholder register to churn. So really what you should be aiming for is, you know, 10, 15% increase. You allocate slightly less to investors than they actually want, so they're encouraged to buy in the aftermarket. That is kind of the art of IPO allocation. And clearly at the moment in the US, it's not working very well. In, in other countries, it actually does still appear to be working. So it's not necessarily that the IPO process is broken, but there clearly needs to be more transparency around the IPO allocation process, you know, who the stock is being allocated to, why it's being allocated right. to them. I think and the investment banks just need to be clear about where there are conflicts. And I think if that situation, I mean, because there is no reason why a company or an investor or a VC that owns a company cannot ask the investment banks for that information. They can and I think that is mm -hmm. the, the key to making this better. So you, you mentioned incentives. Do you think with this existing system, there are incentives for bankers to misprice and then leave, whether there's, if there's a big pop? I think the, the question there is about IPO allocations is, and this is something that's being leveled by, you know, the, which is really the center of this controversy is, are the investment banks allocating stock to their favored clients who are then flipping that for a quick profit? Clearly, there is an agency problem here. And there, there is an inherent conflict because the, the, the banks do have two clients in, the, in this kind of game. I just think better transparency is the key to this, where they actually say, oh, we're going to allocate stock to this, this particular investor. This is how they behaved on prior IPOs. Oh, and by the way, they are you know, a big payer of commissions to us. I think that is the way to you know, have this more mature discussion with issuers. I don't think that necessarily direct listings is going to be revolutionize this process because, you know, the, the best way, I think, to to evaluation and do an offering is through an uh, is through actually through a book build process. Yeah. So the theme I'm picking up for, throughout this conversation is that the problem is allocation. Yeah, but, al but also there are superior price discovery mechanisms prior to IPO in other countries, which you're not able to use in, in this. But I think allocation is definitely central to this conversation because, you know, typically what will happen is that the investors will routinely inflate their orders. So the actual the investment banks do not know what their true demand is and they have to guess. And, and as, as I said a few minutes ago, the the art is to allocate them a little bit less than they actually want. So they're encouraged to buy in the aftermarket. Silly, there's, there's clearly something wrong if you if you allocate the stock and it goes up 70% on day one, that should never happen. The weird thing is that people haven't cared about this in the past because it got good press, which is kind of, it's actually perverse, but it did get good right. press. And I think that there was a view that if it goes up a lot, then actually means that the, the stock will continue to perform well. Actually, this isn't true. There is no correlation between first day pop and ongoing aftermarket performance. And I think also the third thing was that companies thought, oh, if I'm only doing a 10% free float, Okay, I've given away some value, but compared to the entire value of the company, it's not material. And I think that just the view from the, the VCs, which I think is correct, is, you know, if you're selling anything, you should sell it at close to its fair value, not, not substantially below, which I think is a very fair point to make. Well, when there's these 70% pops, the companies are losing money and they could have raised if it was No, it's, I mean, it's, it, a big problem. It, it increases the cost of capital materially. And so, you know, um, a 70% pop should really be seen as a failure. Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. So let's talk a little bit about the companies that have really yeah. brought this into the 
startups, venture capital zeitgeist. So Spotify was the first one yep. who, at least at least as far as I know, completed a really big direct listing. And that was in 2018. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, they, they looking at Spotify's stock right now, looks like when they completed the direct listing, they opened at about $150 per share, or that yep. was what the, the market determined. And today they're trading at about $120 per yep. share. So is that, a, is that a good thing? Is that, is that reasonable? What does that mean? I mean, that, the, I think that that's part of the thing with direct listings. You can't really tell i mean the way that the reference price and i think the reference price for for that particular deal was around 130 or something okay. like that uh, but that reference price was established i think they usually do it they look at you know the last secondary trades in the private market to establish that price so it's really hard to say if it's successful or not because you also don't know which investors have sold out, what price they sold out at, and what price they put in at. So it's actually hard to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's much harder than in an IPO process to um, kind of narrow in and say what has been successful or not. And also, though, I mean, I don't think either of those companies have actually come back to raise primary capital yet. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, the, the measure of success really should be what is our valuation compared to the way it was in, in the private market? So if, it, if, right. you've, if you've increased from that level, and, and, and the VCs, at least on paper, have booked, you know, gains, then you could say that this has worked out well. But you don't really, you know, the proof of the, in the kind of the pudding would be, have you come back and actually raised some capital and, you know, proved that market price in an offering? Because that's another thing that you, and people need to understand. You know, a lot of people say that the measure of value you've given away, a lot of people were, for instance, comparing the IPO price relative to the first trade price. The first trade price is not the right um, um, kind of benchmark because, you know, an IPO may be a couple of hundred million dollars. The first trade is not going to be a couple of hundred million dollars. It's going to be a lot smaller. So you need to think about what is the clearing price for equivalent amounts of stock. So it's really hard in these situations to understand or, you know, have a benchmark to measure success. Yeah. So when Spotify first came out, they were it, their valuation was upwards of thirty million. Sorry, thirty billion dollars. Today, they're floating around closer to twenty-one billion dollars. Compared to the private market, you know, Spotify is substantially above that that price. But then you could also say the people that trade, you know, bought into that stock on day one are nursing losses. So there's actually a number of ways you can look at this. Um, and you could also look at the performance of a company like Spotify or Slack relative to the wider tech sector and say, have they underperformed or overperformed relative to that kind of sector index? There are a number of ways to look at this. But, um, you know, I, I suspect that the the venture capitalists who are involved in that company are, are probably pretty content with what's happened, but other investors may not be. So much more recently, we had Slack completed yes. direct listing, which may have even been a bigger deal in Silicon Valley. Slack yeah. was a, a local company stock. Yeah. Uh, of course, Spotify as uh, a Swedish company. Slack, um, yeah, I mean, is a Silicon Valley darling for a long time. So it was very interesting to see it complete um, a direct listing and go this kind of innovative new route to the public markets. But Slack stock has not been performing well either. And there's been a lot of reports of um, concern and people kind of beg in question, had they just completed an IPO, would their stock be performing better? What do you say to that? Um, you know, I you know I understand why. You know, again, it goes back to the start of this conversation. Did they have a primary capital requirement? Um, 
there was they certainly got a lot of the other benefits of doing an IPO. They got the visibility. A lot of people talked mm-hmm. about it. You know, the, and, and I think actually there exist, some of the existing investors can, would turn around and say, well, we weren't locked up for 180 days, so we were able to, able to sell out. To me, the reason to do an IPO uh, beyond the visibility at, um, point is if you want to raise primary capital, they said they didn't. So I think from a cost perspective, right. this made sense to them. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I don't consider it to be a mistake at all. And, you know, the, and, and once you're listed, you know, aftermarket performance ba- is based on a number of factors. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's probably appropriate to second guess that, that choice because I don't think it would have really made a, you know, a substantial difference to the outcome of how it's traded, you know, since that particular listing. One of the prerequisites for direct listing, people say, is to have a known brand. Yeah. Why does that have anything to do with how your stock will perform via direct listing? Um, why do people need to know who you are? If, you, if you're wanting investors to buy in the aftermarket, they need to know at least something about your company. I mean, certainly the companies that we've just talked about have, have, were very high visibility. And so people had already heard about them. And also through a direct listing, you, obviously you can do some engagement with, with investors. It doesn't preclude you from doing that. It's just you can't offer stock to them. So, and also you have the option to uh, also involve research analysts in, in this process as well. So you can, do all, you can actually do a lot of the things you would do with an IPO. You can actually do with a direct listing too. Um, I think that what um, companies which have lower visibility need to, do, need to realize is they need to make efforts during this process to raise their visibility. And that's what will you know, make it successful endeavor. But what I would say is that the IPO process is really about, for a lot of companies, building their brand. And the fact that they're offering stock makes it easier for investors to get in to the, to the particular company that we're talking about. And for most of these companies, it's actually a financing event. So they're looking to raise capital, and that's the whole point of doing it. Obviously, a direct listing, certainly without a, a, you know, a private placement beforehand, means that they're not able to raise that capital. Um, and the raising of capital is usually strategic for these companies. Aside from a financing event, what, might, what are some ways in which a medium visibility company might be able to raise their profile in the run-up to a listing? In a direct listing, you can actually do a lot of things you can do in an IPO process. So you can engage with, com- you know, with investors in, this, in the same kind of way. And actually, it's probably slightly easier in a direct listing because you're not actually doing an offering. So, for instance, what, you know, one of the things you can do from a, a process perspective, your registration st- statement actually become, become effective before your listing. And actually, you can put guidance out into the market. Mm-hmm. And actually, that helps to help people to kind of establish what they think uh, your future performance will be. Not having to do an offering does actually sometimes make things a little bit more flexible from from a getting information into the market and enable people to assess whether they think you're you're a good investment proposition or not. You know, there was recently a conference here in San Francisco focused on direct listings. Um, We chatted before we recorded. You said you weren't there, but (laughs) you did you did say something interesting. You said that there weren't that many investment bakers present. Yeah, because I think there were some, but I think the, the, the point about this is, and I think, that, again, this has come, some of the interviews you've seen done from venture capitalists who are kind of pushing this trend, you know, they have pointed the finger a little bit at some of the investment banks, quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, about underpricing. Um, and I think that if you're doing a direct, direct listing, what, what does that mean for the investment banks? I think they're, they're, they will still be involved as advisors, but they will be charging lower. They're, making, they're yeah. going to be making less money yeah, from They it. will be making less money. But knowing the investment banks, the, what they will do, and I, I can see this happening already, is they're going to invest in a lot in employing people who are uh, experienced in doing private financings. 
So they, so they can do those they final will, they, will, they will find a way to get involved in the private placements prior to direct listings, and they will do the advice on their direct listings. So even though they may be, you know, this may put some downward pressure on fees overall, the investment banks, I'm sure, will be fine. So and we don't need I, to worry too much about their livelihood? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, they, they will. They will find. They will find a way to make money out of these processes. But I think this is this is kind of the first kind of shot across the bows. And I think that, you know, again, knowing uh, having been an investment banker at a Wall Street firm, what will happen is there will be a discussion between them and the owners of these assets, the venture capitalists, for the most part, and you know they will work through this and and you know they'll come up with enhancements to the process that will make things work better because they have to. So um, you mentioned earlier that you don't see the issue with allocation and pricing in London or in, yes. in Europe that you see in the US. Are people talking as much about direct listings in London as they are here in San Francisco? I think there are two answers to that question. I think in the financial community, no, they're not. I think in the tech community, because they are, because mm-hmm. actually, you know, you will have people in the UK that will, will be listening to this podcast and people, obviously, they just get their heads turned by, you know, things like Slack and Spotify, you know, but one of the things that I think most investment bankers and advisors will turn around to people and say, well, look at the, you know, the pricing outcomes for for IPOs in the UK and Europe. The UK IPOs this year, as an average, I think we're up 10% approximately from, from pricing. The problems that people have identified in the US really aren't apparent. So I think once people actually delve into this, they'll say, well, I can do an IPO process. I can get a valuation close to what I want to achieve. It's not going to have a massive pop on day one. And so I'm not going to be giving away value. And also, you know, in, in addition to that, the fees for IPOs in the UK, Europe are substantially less than they are in the US. So the drivers for direct listings really aren't there. I think people will be asking about it, especially in the tech community. But when you actually look into it in more detail, the the IPO process seems to be functioning better over there than it is here. So despite the fact that things seem to be running smoothly over there and there aren't these major issues with pricing, are you saying that perhaps the London tech community might be influenced by what's going on in in Silicon Valley, regardless of whether it's actually impacting the markets over there? Yeah, I'm sure that's the case because in the tech community, people always look to hear. Um, when I say here, obviously, I mean, we're sitting in San Francisco today. <laughs> you look to TechCrunch's um, studio. Yeah. So, you know, people always do. And so there will be questions about this, but it really goes back to the data and the evidence. The evidence in, in the UK and Europe suggests that the IPO process is working pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think it's also one other thing, actually, that we have in, in the UK and Europe, which, which doesn't really happen here. There is a concept in the UK and Europe of having an independent equity advisor, which is an investment bank which does not have sales and trading capability. And they act as an independent advisor and basically look over the shoulder of the underwriting banks and saying, why have you done this? Why have you done that? And that's another kind of control on this process. I, I, I very rarely see that, if at all, see that hit here in the US. And it could be actually, in, <laughs> I don't think the investment banks would be very happy for me to suggest that. But it is something that actually is relatively common in the UK and Europe to see. How, at what point did a company, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of, um, you know, startup founders are listening, will be listening to this. And at what point should they start thinking, you know, if they know they want to go public, yeah. whether it should be a direct listing or it should be an IPO? I think that you could do a lot. You can still do a lot of the investor engagement without deciding which way you're going to go. And you probably should be doing it because even if you're going to do a direct listing, you want to be marketing yourself to investors so they'll come in and try and buy your stock post IPO. So you can do, and and, and to be honest, from a regulatory perspective, 
you know, the filings you're going to put, you're still going to do the same registration statement to the SEC. And in, in, the, th- in the same way, the same thing would, ha- you know, occur in the UK. You still have to put, put together the same mm-hmm. listing documents. The diligence is the same. So actually, you could probably wait until relatively late in the day before deciding between the two options because a lot of the basic plumbing is the same. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's actually a good thing. So you, you, you've got the flexibility to decide relatively late in the day which, which one you want to do. You just get to skip the outlandish fees if you ultimately do pick the direct <laughs> listing. Um, yeah, outlandish was, was your word, not mine. <laughs> uh, certainly the fees will be, will be high if you do an IPO in the US yeah. over a direct, direct listing. That, that is in, incontrovertible. So let's wrap things up. Last question for you. Uh, just talk a little bit about predictions. How much do you anticipate the markets to change now that everybody's so gung-ho on direct listings? Do you think there'll be tons and tons more? What do you, what do you think? There will be some more. I don't think there'll be tons and tons more. I think this really fits, for, certainly for the unicorn community, and especially those which are not burning through cash on a very aggressive basis. I think for that kind of community, high visibility, not no, not burning through cash too much, those guys can do it and you know and quite frankly you know they may decide to do it because they'll look at the fees and they'll say actually we can get the most of the benefits of being public at a much lower cost i think if for the average company though and and this is the, you know the vast majority of companies in vc portfolios the traditional ipo process will be the way to go and most of them will have some kind of primary capital requirement and as i said the ipo process at least gives you the certainty of what price you're going to get and also it it, it, it you know, it's a much broader uh, outreach to investors than a direct listing is. So I think for the most companies, and certainly if there is accommodation that's made between banks, the banks and the, and the venture capitalists, I, I can see that for the most part, most companies will be doing the, the traditional IPO process. If you're a company that's more focused on growth and profitability, then perhaps an IPO would be a better option for you? Well, I think the question is, do you have a substantial primary capital requirement? Mm -hmm. If you do, more often than not, the IPO process is the way to go. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great. And I hope everyone learned a little bit about direct listings. Yes, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week.